Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode two of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical experience supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. First, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I am so grateful that you are on this journey with me, and I'm really excited to be sharing all this information with you. The first three episodes of The Well-Nurtured Brain are an introductory course into something called the Neurological Reserve. Now, I want to start here because it's a way to lay the foundation for understanding why so many of the things that we'll talk about in this podcast actually work for brain health. So I want you to pay really close attention to these three episodes. They do lay a foundation for understanding so much of what we're going to talk about, and I'm going to refer back to this concept from time to time. So today in part one, we are discussing the basics of neurological reserve, which is also known as the reserve hypothesis. Here is a basic definition just to get you into the neighborhood of what we're talking about. Neurological reserve is considered the capacity of your brain to handle various metabolic and physiological stressors. So in other words, it's the reserve or the stores or the resting abilities that your brain draws upon to help it resist, respond to, and recover from injury, stress, aging, illness, and other metabolic challenges. Why is this important? So imagine you were in a skiing accident. Let's say you were having a great day. It was the last run of the day. And you decided to just stretch it out a little bit, and you took a jump, fell, and hit your head. You got a concussion. A concussion is a form of brain injury where there isn't any bleeding or bruising on the brain. In a concussion, there's violent shaking and rocking of the brain against the skull, and it causes wide-ranging micro-injuries to the neurons and cells across the brain. If you've ever had a loved one or yourself have had a concussion, you know that For some folks, they are mild and sometimes they can be severe. Recovery is very variable and it's kind of hard to predict sometimes who's going to have the bad concussion and who's going to have the relatively mild one. If you have a high level of neurological reserve going into that concussion or that injury, it stands to reason that you would suffer less from symptoms and likely recover faster than someone else who has low levels of neurological reserve. This is a presumption we're making. There's a lot of reasons behind this presumption. But essentially, if you have high neurological reserve, we think that you're going to be able to tolerate and, in a sense, have a workaround and an ability to manage and recover faster from that injury. So hopefully now the importance of robust neurological reserve is starting to sink in and that you might be getting a little curious about, well, what actually does it mean to me? I'm going to give you one more example to consider here. Okay, so think about how you live your life now. Think about all the things that you enjoy. 
What are the things that you enjoy most, the things that make your life meaningful? So perhaps you thought about time with friends and family. Maybe you thought about reading. Maybe you love going to restaurants or traveling. Or maybe you just love playing games or playing chess. It can be so many things. It's, it's you. You're an individual person. Now think about how long do you want to be able to do those things in your life? Do you want to do them until you're 60 and then the last 20 years not be able to? I suspect that you want to do them as long as possible. I personally want to be doing all the things that I love for as long as possible, ideally right up to the end. So one inevitable metabolic and neurological stressor that we all contend with is aging. Over time, unhealthy aging degrades the health of our brains. I'll talk more about how this happens in future episodes, but right now if we just think of aging as an inevitable metabolic and neurological stressor, if we don't have resilient and resistant brains, aging may eventually result in the loss of our abilities to do things long before we actually expire. It could look like difficulties with planning a trip or a task. It could be difficulties with making logical decisions, following instructions or directions, comprehending complex or even simple ideas. And eventually it can look like even having difficulties remembering our friends or our family. So because of this stressor that we can't get away from, I would say that brain health is probably the most important factor for having a long and healthy lifespan because we need a good brain to enjoy all these things that you love, to make life meaningful as long as possible. So we know folks with high neurological reserve live longer without signs of brain aging and cognitive impairment. Their brains seem to be resilient and withstand the process of aging. Or maybe a better way of putting it is that their brains experience healthy aging. To drive this point home, let's talk about something that you've probably never heard before. Something called asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease is essentially where someone has the pathological processes going on in their brains that we associate with Alzheimer's dementia, but who do not have the symptoms of cognitive impairment while they're alive. Pathological processes associated with Alzheimer's disease are things like amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. These are structures that form in the brain tissue and are suspected to be involved in the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. We don't know if these structures actually cause the disease or are a byproduct of it, but we do know that people in their lifetimes who have developed Alzheimer's dementia will have these structures in their brain cells. So what's interesting about asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease is that it is actually apparently a common finding in brain health studies. Of course, it's diagnosed after death by biopsy. And these are people who have tested normal on rigorous cognitive assessments, who have significant changes in their neurons and nerve cells in their brains, the changes that we would expect to see for people who are having mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's dementia. But these folks were tested before they died, and they didn't show any signs of that. They had no symptoms. There's a famous study called the NUN study. It's a great example of this, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. 
The Nun study started in 1986 by David Snowden, and it continues to this day, and it is a remarkable feat in neurological research. To give you a sense of it, I'm going to read from an abstract of David Snowden's 2003 paper he published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. I'm going to interrupt this a bit, but on the whole, these are his words. So he wrote, the Nunn study was a longitudinal study of a cohort of 678 Catholic sisters aged 75 to 107 years of age who are members of the School Sisters of Notre Dame Congregation. So just to orient you a bit, this is an American group of nuns. Back to his words, the data collected for this study included early and midlife risk factors from the convent archives, annual cognitive and physical function evaluations during old age, and post-mortem neuropathological evaluations of the participants' brains. So I'm going to pause here for a second just to acknowledge that, of course, if you're going to do a study on brain health and have it applicable to the general population, a problem with your study would be if your study subjects were mainly white women in North America, in the United States, who have strong religious beliefs, practices, and community. This is a really specific population, so that's important to keep in mind. That being said, the data and the information from the study is a treasure and continues to produce really interesting information for us. So full of interesting information already, continuing to pay dividends in terms of us learning about brains and brain health. The case histories presented, this is back to Dr. Snowden's words, the case histories presented include a centurion who was a model of healthy aging, a 92-year-old with dementia and clinically significant Alzheimer's disease neuropathology. So this is your typical patient, right, where they show clinically significant changes in their cognitive function, and then when they die and they look at their brain, they see clinically significant neuropathology, and in this case, vascular lesions that were likely contributing to or at least related to that pathology that they were experiencing in real life. And then he also had a cognitively and physically intact centurion with almost no neuropathology, which is amazing. And this is the case history that I think is most interesting for this podcast today. An 85-year-old with well-preserved cognition and physical function despite a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's disease and an abundance of Alzheimer's disease lesions. He goes on to say that these case histories provide examples of how healthy aging and dementia relate to the degree of pathology present in the brain and, and this is very important, this is a big and, and the level of resistance to the clinical expression of the neuropathology. So basically he's saying there that Yes, we found a correlation between dementia and changes in the brain, absolutely, and that maybe we can say that there's healthy brain aging and unhealthy brain aging, and there are people out there who have the pathological changes in their brain that would normally be correlated with Alzheimer's dementia or mild cognitive impairment, yet they showed resistance to that. So this study is a huge gift because it's establishing that people can be both resistant and resilient 
despite Alzheimer's disease pathology. Another gift of this study lies in the historical data that they had and the cognitive assessments that they did annually with these nuns. Why? Because it starts to build a really great data set for looking at who did well, who did as expected, and who did worse than expected. After the subject died, they could look back at the cognitive abilities of each nun just prior to their death. They could also look at the cognitive abilities in the years and those annual assessments leading up to it. Then they also had these archives, these records of the nuns' histories in the convent going way back, much further back, looking at those early and midlife risk factors. An interesting piece of data they have was these short autobiographies, about 200 of these nuns wrote, that were written when they first joined the convent as young women. So in those 200 women, they actually have autobiographies of their lives, and there's some interesting data in there. So all this information has helped researchers to tease out what seems to be correlated with the sisters who had the best cognition as they aged and the sisters who appeared to beat the odds, meaning that they maintained good brain function in old age despite genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's dementia and even having neuropathological changes consistent with it. I feel like I'm saying that sentence a lot here, but it bears repeating. There's a word for this. They are positive deviants. People who, despite having the pathology that would normally be associated with severe symptomology in that person's day-to-day life, people who, despite that pathological change, are functioning well, are positive deviants. And we can learn a lot from positive deviants. And this has also been repeated in research looking at Parkinson's patients, for instance. Who are those positive deviants? We can come up with correlations. We unfortunately can't come up with causations at this point with these types of studies, but we can say, look, there's a trend, and maybe you want to recreate that trend in your own life. So is this a brilliant study? It's such a rich source of information from the personal histories to this regular subject testing to the postmortem tissue analysis. There is a book about it published by David Snowden in 2001. I'll put the title in the show notes so people can go check it out if they want to read it. So of course now you're asking, well, what on earth did these nuns do? Why did these nuns do so well? How do I recreate this positive deviance? Well, next on the well-nurtured brain, We're going to dig deeper and explore the two subcategories of neurological reserve. Remember, that's where we got here. We were talking about neurological reserve. Brain reserve and cognitive reserve. These are the next two subjects in the podcast. And in there, we're going to revisit these nuns and what they have taught scientists about these two reserves and how to support them. It's only going to get juicier from here. We've got lots of great information coming in the next couple episodes. I'm looking forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember to be kind to your mind. We'll see you next time on The Well-Nurtured Brain. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. 
The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.